Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let's pray together. Fathers, we quiet our hearts and come into your holy presence. We're mindful that it's only because Jesus shed his blood on the cross that we have this new and living way open for us into the very presence of God. And I pray that now you would send forth the awesome power of the Holy Spirit of God, that the Spirit would do his special office and work in our midst, which is of elevating and exalting Christ, that we would have a a greater estimation of his worth and value and his excellence. I pray that you would enlighten our eyes, give us spiritual vision through faith, through the ministry of the Word of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be looking this morning at verses 36 to 46, Jesus in Gethsemane. For me, I love reading stories from church history. I love just immersing myself in tales of courage and strength and vigor by which God has advanced the kingdom of God. Uh, I think in heaven we're going to spend a lot of time in testimony, one after the other, listening to what God has done. My mind moves to, for example, Polycarp in the year 155 when he was faced with his own death and they were trying to force him to recount, to recant his faith in Christ. He said, 86 years I've served him and I cannot blaspheme my king and my savior who has done me no harm. Also, Columba, the missionary in Scotland, a very bold and courageous man, went to the fortress of Bruda, the king of the Picts, and sat outside the fortress gate and would not leave until he had an audience with this fierce king and eventually witnessed to him and led him to Christ. And just think about courage of a man like Boniface that chopped down the sacred oak of Thor in the woods of Thuringia and then stood up on the stump and preached the gospel. The kind of boldness that we see in John Huss, who was just about to get burned at the stake, and he said, what I've testified with my lips, I now seal with my blood. And of course, Martin Luther, who stood at the Diet of Arms very courageously and said, concerning the gospel he had discovered in the book of Romans, he said, I can do no other. Here I stand, so help me God. Or I think even about Elizabeth Elliot, who went into the jungle of, of Ecuador and led the same people to faith in Christ who had just killed her husband. These are tales of courage, but I can tell you, in all of history, there's nothing compared to what we're going to look at today, the courage of Jesus Christ in drinking the cup of God's wrath. So I'd like you to look with me at Matthew 26, verses 36 and following, as we immerse our minds and our hearts in this incredible account. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. 
Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. So my purpose this morning is a number of things. First, I just want to exalt Christ our Savior based on this account. I want to magnify Him and I want us to worship together as we study this. Secondly, I want to delve into the humanity of Jesus Christ to try to understand His emotions, His submission, His mortality, His frailty, His temptations, and yet in all of that, His sinlessness. Thirdly, I want us to meditate together on the power of prayer in facing temptations, in strengthening us to do the will of the Father. Fourthly, I want to motivate us to trust more than ever before in the finished work of Christ on the cross, his atoning sacrifice for us. And finally, to help us understand the proper role of the will in the human life. So in order to do that, I wanna look first at the facts of Gethsemane. We're gonna just walk through the text. And then secondly, the mysteries of Gethsemane. Thirdly, the glories of Gethsemane, and finally, the application of Gethsemane. And let's begin with the facts of Gethsemane. B.B. Warfield said this, that Jesus, all his life, lived under the shadow of the cross. He said the prospect of his suffering was a perpetual Gethsemane to him. Jesus was fully aware of exactly what was going to happen to him from Gethsemane and beyond. And he'd been aware his whole adult life. In Luke 12, 50, he said, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed or straightened in the King James Version, like in a straitjacket, until it is accomplished. Oh, there's clear evidence in the Gospels that Jesus knew meticulously ahead of time everything that was going to happen to him. In Matthew 20, 18 and 19, Jesus said, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he'll be raised to life. John's gospel, in fact, says that Jesus went from Gethsemane knowing everything that was going to happen to him. Well, the time had come in this account that Jesus faced straight on the inevitability of the cross and to make a final decision about what he would do about that. So let's follow in Matthew 26 the order leading up just to get some sense of context. In verses 1 through 14, Jesus is anointed by Mary at Bethany, prepared for his burial. In verses 15 and 16, Judas agrees to betray Jesus to the chief priests and the scribes with 30 pieces of silver. And then Jesus arranges for the Passover meal to be prepared. While eating the Passover meal, Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal. Then he institutes the Lord's Supper in verses 26 through 30, and then in verses 31 through 35 predicts the disciples' denial and flight. Then in verse 36, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. So what was Gethsemane? Well, Gethsemane was a walled, privately owned garden where Jesus went frequently for refuge and prayer to be with his disciples. The word Gethsemane literally means olive press, a place where olives would be crushed 
under great massive pressure and the, and the viscous reddish fluid would come out, very precious. This gives somewhat of a parable or a metaphor of the kind of immense spiritual pressure that Jesus would face in Gethsemane. Well, why did he go to Gethsemane? Well, as I mentioned, it was a place of refuge and retirement and prayer. I believe he went there every night. And so establishing a regular habit of going to Gethsemane, Jesus knew that Judas knew that he would go there. And therefore, to go there on that particular night when he knows that Judas has already left him to betray him is in effect willingly to go to the cross. He's not trying to escape. He's not in any way snared or trapped by Judas Iscariot. No, he willingly laid down his life. He said in John 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up again, this command I received from my Father. So by going to Gethsemane, that was part of Jesus' willingness to die for us. Well, at the beginning of the account, Jesus commanded his disciples to stay with him while he prayed. He said to some of them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he takes with him Peter and James and John, the inner circle, the, his closest friends in the world. And as I was thinking about this this morning, I was, I was marveling at the fact that Peter, James, and John had seen Jesus in his greatest exaltation in his days on earth. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw him radiant and glorious, his face shining like the sun. Now they would see him in his time of greatest humiliation on earth, literally groveling on the ground with drops of blood falling from his face. And so he wanted to be with them. And we see the humanness of Jesus in this. He wanted to be close to his friends as he went through this great suffering. And clearly he wanted to pray. Though in the account, they, all of them, underestimated the importance of prayer, Jesus knew that he could not face the cross, the suffering of the cross, without praying to his heavenly Father. Well, we see in the account the awesome emotional distress of Jesus, stated right in the account in verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and then stated plainly by Jesus himself about himself. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So we see the overpowering emotions of Jesus getting stronger and stronger as he nears his time of death. As a matter of fact, some scholars believe that Jesus' feelings were so overpowering there in the garden that he almost died physically right there. It says in Luke twenty-two forty-three, an angel was dispatched from heaven to strengthen him. So you see the incredible frailty and weakness of Jesus. And then in the very next verse in Luke's account, it says, and being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I can't even imagine what that was like. You can think about some situation where you're like, like that, so overpowered by grief or anguish that your face gets red, but his went even beyond that. And I wonder if perhaps even the capillaries just below the surface of the skin burst and there's just blood dripping to the ground. The intensity of the anguish. And then we see Jesus' prayer itself in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So we see his physical position. He's, he's, he's fallen prostrate on the ground, fallen on his face. Like the hymn writer says, view him groveling in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. That's amazing that the, the word is demeaning. He's groveling. 
like eating dirt or crawling on the ground, a physical position even lower than the, the tax collector in the parable that Jesus told who, who beat his breast and would not look upward but stood at a distance and said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus' physical body posture is even lower than that. And he comes to this request, is it possible? Actually, Mark 14, 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. I mean, it's very moving. I mean, any, any one of you fathers, you have little kids, toddlers, you know, saying daddy, and it just melts your heart. And you can do anything. Is there any way that this could be arranged differently than this? Is there some other way for me to save my sheep without drinking this cup? He's probing the limits of his father's sovereignty. Now, later in the same Matthew account, when Peter tries to rescue Jesus from being arrested, you know, he pulls out his little dagger and he's trying to fight to save Jesus. And Jesus tells him to put his sword away. He said, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? It's very plain in Jesus' mind. There's no doubt that he must be lifted up, his hands and feet pierced, his blood must be shed, he must die. He knows that. And he knows that 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 promise, that commitment, has been signed in the blood of millions of sacrificial animals and all the promises and prophecies that were made in the generations that preceded. But that's what he's praying for. Is it possible? May this cup be taken from me. Now we come to the cup. What is this cup? Well, I believe this is the cup of God's judgment. It's the cup of his, of his wrath, his just wrath poured out on his enemies. And we see this in, in Revelation 14, 10 and 11, speaking of the enemies of God, the, the condemned in hell. It says, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He'll be tormented with burning sulfur and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night. It's the eternal torment and it uses the word cup. The cup of God's torment, it's hell. To some degree, Jesus was looking into the foaming wine of the wrath of God. The justice of God poured out on sinners. And it is absolutely terrifying. The wrath of God poured out on the condemned in hell is really God's omnipotence and his omniscience focused like a laser beam or like a lightning bolt, an eternal strike on the enemies of God. It's a terrifying thing. And I think Jesus is shrinking back from the cup of God's wrath. But then we see the submission of Jesus in verse 39, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is the most significant moment in the whole account. Jesus' willingness to do the Father's will no matter what it cost him. Then he returns in verse 40 and 41 to his disciples, finds them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me? Even for one hour, he asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He knows that Peter especially is about to face the severest test of his life. And he needs to not be sleeping in that moment, but he needs to be preparing himself and getting ready through prayer. And he marvels, and this has often convicted me, that he can't, that they can't even pray with him for one hour, as though that were the minimum. Their weakness is so great that they can't persevere in prayer even for one hour. 
So Jesus in verse 42 goes away a second time and prays, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He asserts it a second time. Then the disciples, failing again in verse 43, finds them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Luke tells us that they're exhausted from sorrow. So he prays the final prayer in verse 44. He left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And at the end of the account, Jesus goes and rouses them up from their sleep, says, the hour is at hand, my betrayer is here. Rise, let us go. And he goes out with great courage to meet his death. So that's the account. Those are the facts of Gethsemane. Now let's see if we can probe somewhat the mysteries of Gethsemane. Herman Bavinck said this powerfully. Mystery is the vital element of dogmatics. The idea that the believer would be able to understand and comprehend intellectually the revealed mysteries is unscriptural. On the contrary, the truth which God has revealed concerning himself in nature and scripture far surpasses human conception and comprehension. So we're going to come in this account in Gethsemane to infinite mystery that we cannot resolve. Let's start with the mystery of Jesus' incarnation, perhaps the greatest mystery of all theology, the weakness of Jesus and yet the deity of Jesus. How do we put the humanity, the full humanity of Jesus together with this full deity? How do we understand that? Jesus did not, was not, as some of the early heretics said, merely appearing or seeming to be human. He truly was human. And we see that very plainly here. And especially in his weakness, his frailty. The fact that an angel who he created and in some mysterious way sustains has to come and strengthen him and enable him to get through the whole experience in Gethsemane. We see the frailty of Jesus as a man of sorrows, groveling on, on the ground. And to me, this is somewhat mysterious because anyone who reads anything of military history, any kind of history, you know that many other people face death with less turmoil than this. I mean, even pagans, Roman soldiers, others just go right to their death, knowing full well they're going to die that day on the battlefield, and they don't shrink back at all. Socrates took the cup of poison, unflinching, and drained it, knowing he would die. Martin Luther said about Jesus in Gethsemane, no man ever feared death like this man. To me, that's a mystery. Why the terrifying fear of death here? How do we understand the omnipotence of God in Jesus' full deity and the, the terrible weakness and frailty we see and the fear in Jesus here as a human? That's a mystery to me. But even greater mystery comes in Mark 14, 33. And you don't turn there, but just listen. It's a very, very interesting thing. Years ago, I had this insight, and it just has to do with the precision, I think, of the King James translation. None of the other modern translations capture it well. But when Jesus entered Gethsemane, I've already established he knew very well factually what was about to happen. I mean, he told them in meticulous detail what would happen. He knew factually what was going to happen. But part of the mystery of the incarnation is there seemed to be some things he didn't know. He learned things as a child, certainly. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. I don't think he knew the woman with the flow of blood who touched him. I don't think he knew that she, did. He touched, she touched him. He didn't know the exact day or hour of his return in Matthew 24. There's just some things. So how in the world we get omniscience together with not knowing something, I don't know. You can work that out. Same thing with how do we get omnipotence together with this frailty? But in 
Mark 14.33, the King James Version translates it this way, and he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be, listen to this, sore amazed and to be very heavy. Now, I did some research on that word, and, and it's, it's an excellent translation in the King James. It has to do with, let's say, the crowd's reactions to Jesus' miracles, his ministry, or to the apostles' ministry in the book of Acts, use the same word, or Mary and the women, their reaction at seeing an angel from heaven at the empty tomb, amazed and a bit terrified. It has to do with something has hit you in a way that astounds you, amazes you, stuns you. As I said, none of the other translations really carry that sense of amazement over. So I meditate. How, how could Jesus, who knew full well meticulously the details of what was coming, how could he be amazed? And the more I meditated, I said, you know, there's, there's knowing, and then there's knowing. And there's just a deeper level of knowing that the Father revealed to him. I, I look at it this way, like a revelation that came on his soul from the Father of what it would be like to drink that cup of his wrath. It'd be like seeing a postcard from the Grand Canyon versus sitting in an IMAX theater with a 30 or 40 foot high screen and sense around sound and, and, and you're taking a helicopter ride in the film through, through the Grand Canyon. It's just a whole different experience. Much more overpowering. Ephesians 1 talks about the eyes of our heart being enlightened and so God can pour out a vision or a sense of reality. And we knew the facts of it, like I know Jesus loves me, but no, he can pour out a sense of that so much greater than you ever thought was possible. Well here, I think the Father unleashed on Jesus a fuller revelation of what it would be like to drink the foaming cup of his wrath on the cross. And Jesus was literally knocked to the ground. Now you may ask, why did the Father do it? Well, I think he did it so that he could ask his son if he would still drink it. This is what it will be like. Will you still do it? You may ask, why didn't he do it earlier? Well, look at the effect. Jesus, I don't think, could have gotten through a single day of life knowing to that level what it would be like in his humanness. And that, that brings me to the infinite majesty of Jesus' courage. It's like some conversation is happening in the spiritual realms between the Father and the Son. The Father is saying, my beloved Son, this is what it will be like. See it, look at it. The Son's knocked to the ground. The Son asked, Father, is there any other way? Any other way that I can save our people than me drinking this cup? The answer comes back, no, there is no other way. Will you drink it anyway? And then comes that incredible, sublime moment of courage, the greatest moment there's ever been in human history. I will drink it, not my will, but yours be done. The final mystery I wanna look at with you is the mystery of the prayer itself. Not my will, but yours be done. Are we thinking that they're in somehow opposition, that Jesus is willing something different than the Father? Perish the thought. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Isaiah 53, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his, the servant's, hand. So Jesus was delighted in the will of the Father. So we're not in any way saying that the will of Jesus was different than that of the Father. So what are the glories of Gethsemane? Well, we see free will properly used on full display. We have the pinnacle example of how human choice should work. 
Jesus had no sin nature holding him back, no corruption. He was free and he used his free will perfectly to do the will of his father. From that point on, Jesus would only be able to escape death by exerting supernatural power and that he would not do. Secondly, we see the glory of the justice of God on display in slaughtering his own son. To many people, it's troubling. They have trouble with substitutionary atonement. They have trouble with the father torturing and murdering his only beloved son. They struggle with it. Natural fathers, normal fathers, love their sons and will do anything and everything they could to deliver them. Charles Spurgeon, making this point, told a story from antiquity of a father whose two sons were condemned to die. And the authorities gave him the ability to choose one of them to save him. And the father looked at the face of his older son and the face of the younger son and back and forth and back and forth and was utterly paralyzed by the decision. He couldn't render either one of them to death and so was so completely paralyzed that they just killed them both. Well, I think any father knows exactly what we're talking about. How then can our loving father, God is love, slaughter and pour out his wrath on his son? Well, I don't fully understand the depths of that, but one thing I know, foundational to that is the fact that Jesus was fully willing to go. The father asked him, will you do it? And the son said, I will do it. And that's foundational. There is no injustice in God. Actually, the cross is the greatest display of the justice of God of all time. It says in Romans 3.26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Thirdly, we see the obedience of Jesus contrasted with the disobedience of Adam. It says in Romans 5.19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous. This is a clear picture of that obedience. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.9, and it also says in, in Philippians 2, Jesus being found in appearance as a man humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. And we see the perfect love of Jesus for his father vertically and for us. Love is measured by cheerful sacrifice. The more you love, the more you are delighted, personally delighted to sacrifice for another. The greater the love, the greater the sacrifice. The converse, the greater sacrifice, the greater love, as long as it's done with delight. God loves a cheerful giver. And Jesus did this for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross so that he might bring to salvation sons and daughters. And finally, we see the courage of Jesus. There is no greater display of courage. This is something that I've meditated on recently and it's like, oh God, thank you for the boldness and the courage of getting up off the ground with a bloody face and walking out of that garden to the cross for me. So application, what do we take from this? Well, first and foremost, let's just trust in him for the salvation of our sins. To some degree, the shedding of the blood of Jesus began there in Gethsemane and went on through to the cross. And Jesus shed his blood that our sins might be forgiven. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you are sharing the gospel with lost people in this area and to the ends of the earth, portray clearly the obedience 
and the blood atonement of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the gospel that we preach. So just celebrate this gospel and trust him and worship Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit for what he did for you and me. But even more than that, you remember James and John asked to sit at Jesus' right and his left, and Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? They said, we can, not knowing what they were talking about. Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup. Now, we do not drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus drained that to the dregs for us. But we do drink the cup of affliction and suffering. And everywhere on this campus, I see this word, go. And God is going to be sending you, my brothers and sisters, all around the world to do ministries. And at some point in your ministry, whether you're reaching out to an unreached people group or you're doing church planning somewhere in the North American context, you're going to do some church revitalization, or even working with a healthy church to cause its ministry and that community to flourish, you are going to be handed a cup of suffering at some point. And the Father is going to ask you, are you willing to drink it? And at that moment, when you take that cup in your hand, think about Gethsemane and say, oh God, by the power of the Spirit in me, let me drink to the bottom whatever suffering you give me so that for the joy set before me, I might see the fruit of my labors and the advance of the gospel. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the, the, the infinite depth of the word of God and the sober scene of Gethsemane. And God, I pray that you would take the truth of this word and press it deep into our hearts. Help us to embrace by faith the infinite dimensions of Jesus' courage for us and help us to imitate him in obedience, saying, not my will, but yours be done in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.